0: Today, to continue an understanding of an ancient Bible narrative of a true story, the whole nation of Israel was built upon the family of the sons of Jacob. And it's quite an amazing thing to study that family and what went on within it. You would think, how could God be trying to do anything positive like creating the nation of Israel out of a messed up family like that of the Sons of Jacob who mistreated and sold into slavery their brother Joseph. We've considered this for six weeks and then I was away too, so we're back looking at the seventh time. I have a couple more to do yet to see this great epic tale of God working. I'm reading in Genesis 42. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I invite you to follow and then I'll pick up verses. 17 through 28 for the sake of brevity there. There's a lot of repetition and we're trying to get the meat of the passage. So follow along. Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down there. Buy grain for us that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the other brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Let me come down just a little farther there to verse 17. After further interrogation, Joseph put them all together in custody for three days. And then we continue reading. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul and he, when he begged us and we did not listen, and that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you all not to sin against the boy, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. He returned to them and spoke to them and took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes, and Joseph gave orders to fill their sacks with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and gave them provisions for the journey. This was done. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? May God bless his word this morning. Well, prior to my being away two weeks, we followed this drama and saw that in the passages we were looking at last time, the main spotlight was on Joseph, who had been raised from slavery and servitude in the house of an important man, had been put in jail, but rose out of there when he interpreted dreams of Pharaoh himself and was given this great position of responsibility and wisdom in administering the famine time in Egypt. The spotlight has been on Joseph. But now it moves. The spotlight now casts a wider circle on the ten infamous brothers and their father, Jacob, who is still living back at the family sheep ranch in Canaan. And time has passed, about 20 years, we think, Joseph was 17 when we first heard about him. Now he's in his late 30s, probably about 37. And he now is the viceroy of Egypt, the second most powerful person in one of the most powerful countries in the world, one of the superpowers, really, of that day, the land of Egypt. And we open with Jacob speaking to his 10 grown sons who were apparently... Lying about, not doing much of anything, as Jacob comes in as a father would do and sees not much happening. If I put it in a 21st century idiom, we'll see the ten sons were watching daytime TV, the young and the restless, and as the stomach turns and all of those good daily shows, and doing nothing. And Jacob says, What are you doing? Get up! We need food. Go down to Egypt and do something constructive. Go get us food that we would not die. But Jacob would not send Benjamin because he had a clear remembrance of what happened to Benjamin's brother Joseph. And these two were the apples of his eye, the sons of Rachel, his dearest wife. So he held Benjamin back on purpose. Well, I tell you, I I try to construct in my mind what these ten men were like. They were a pretty nasty group. Coming back and studying Joseph's life again has just reminded me that the rough, raw material God used to build the nation of Israel. It was pretty sorry human stuff that he built with. I tried to think, where could you find good employment for ten men like this with their immoral characters? And I decided that if Blackbeard, the notorious pirate, needed recruits, he could have taken the ten sons of Jacob and probably made good use of them. Simeon and Levi, sons number two and three, had once not, well, a few years ago, slaughtered an entire village of the people of Shechem because of what they saw as a a grave insult that that village did against their sister slaughtered them, just killed them. Oldest son, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine. In chapter 38, number four son, Judah, got his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, pregnant. And add to these the fact that the 10 men had conspired together to sell their own brother, Joseph, into slavery, and now for 20 years... They had persisted in that conspiracy so that nobody had spilled the beans at all to Jacob about what had really happened to Joseph. They were happy to allow their father to suffer in grief and mourn 20 years for Joseph without telling him what had really been done. These future patriarchs of Israel are people who need to be confronted with their evil ways. They needed to be brought down, let's say, to recognize the kind of sinful men that they were deep repentance was required their consciences had been asleep and god needed to do something to teach them grace a word that they didn't seem to know at all well the first thing god began to do here was to use the tool of what i would call the squeeze of deprivation let them taste what it is to be wanting in some fundamental area of their life, hunger, and see how they would behave because as we picture these men who are now at least in their late 30s or probably most of them in their 40s, they're not kids anymore, but yet they seem to me like men we would picture perhaps in today's standard as rich playboys, born with silver spoons in their mouth. Jacob was a rich man. His sons didn't lack for anything. And Give it a 21st century idiom. Dad owned a lot of nice cars, a few Mercedes, and if one of the boys wanted to go out and get a little drunk and wreck the Mercedes, well, dad would lecture him for that, but there'd be another car in the garage uh, the next week. That's the kind of life these fellows had lived. They'd They'd never been hungry before. And now, all of a sudden, just where meals come from and how to feed the stock. They had vast herds of sheep was a big issue and they didn't have any clever rich playboy solutions to connive and and figure out how to supply this. So you've got the providence of God here working in natural causes of a regional famine that affected a large area of the world and people coming to Egypt which was the only place that had grain to be able to feed themselves and their herds and their animals and everything else. God used a natural calamity To get to these folks. Certainly makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? Of fellow Americans who this morning are in the midst of a terrible calamity in the Carolinas. I'm sure some of you must have relatives and friends. Some of whom probably thought, well, I can weather it out. You know, I saw a fellow interviewed on TV the other day. Oh, I've seen lots of hurricanes. No problem. I'll just stick it out, you know. Well, for all we know, that guy's isolated in the second floor of his house right now because the whole first floor is a swimming pool. Natural calamity certainly can introduce people to all kinds of squeezes upon what they rely on and what kind of people they are towards one another and towards God. Well, here's Papa Jacob who comes in and demands, guys, come on, get up, form an expedition, go out there to that country where they have food, Egypt, I just kind of imagine 10 pairs of eyes blinking open when Jacob said Egypt because Egypt represented something to all of these men, the place where they had sent their brother by selling him to slave traders and they didn't know that he was still alive. I don't suppose they imagined if they went to Egypt, they'd ever run into Joseph. He'd either be dead or, or working in some lowly place Slaves didn't necessarily live very long. They certainly didn't imagine he was the number two man in power that they were going to meet right away. And you see how different it is for them than it was for Joseph because let me remind you, Genesis 41, 51 says that Joseph had two sons of his Egyptian wife and one of them, the firstborn, he named Manasseh, which means Forgetting or forgetful. We think what that was about is Joseph was saying, I am willing to forget and forgive the hurts and the wrongs and the injustice that have been brought against me and go forward with life with my God. He was able to have a son in his very home that, and when he called out, Manasseh, come on in for lunch, he was reminding himself that he was willing to forget the harm that had been done to him. But these 10 men, no such thing. We're going to find out in a a moment that that 20-year-old crime of selling their brother was so fresh, it was right there bursting on the surface of their consciousness. But God used this squeeze of physical deprivation to bring them into a position where they had to face this thing. You see, how could that relate to me? I don't have to go to Egypt to get food. No, but you might have had to deal with unemployment or you might be dealing with unemployment sometime soon in your life, not even expecting it or some financial reversal or some relational breakdown. God uses other kinds of deprivation to help us stop depending on ourselves alone and start looking to him to say, what after all is happening in my life here? Well, besides the tool of squeezing someone with deprivation, there's a second thing to see. It comes in verse 6 of chapter 42 when the brothers come to Egypt and bow down before Joseph and begin to receive the vice-tightening harsh treatment that was testing who and what they were about. Isn't it interesting? You remember the dream Joseph had when he was 17. What was the dream? Everybody was going to bow down before him, his brothers, his parents, like the stars of the sky bow, and, and everybody mocked him, and everybody derided Joseph. What, what a What kind of a proud peacock are you anyway? Here's the fulfillment of the dream happening automatically as soon as the brothers come into the presence of Joseph, their brother, they don't know he's their brother, but here he is now, the viceroy of Egypt, and they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. God fulfilled the dream that Joseph had long before. And you might think as you look at this, you say, well, I don't think it was very good of Joseph to treat them so rough. If he had really forgotten and forgiven, why didn't he rush out and embrace them all right there and And cry on their shoulders and say, My brothers, my brothers, all is forgiven. Well, I think it's because God had some work to do in the hearts and minds of these men, and Joseph was the instrument. It says he spoke roughly to them, he meted out a little bit of the kind of punishment he had endured being in jail, not being sure what was going to come to happen or whether he would even survive. And God wanted them to taste that, the kind of treatment, in order to test them, it says. To test and see what they were made of. Joseph might have already forgiven his brother. I think he did. But he had to test them because forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. You can forgive somebody, but not necessarily be reconciled to them. A a wife could forgive her husband for committing adultery, but not necessarily be reconciled to him. Joseph had heard these men make one grossly false statement when they said to to him, we are honest men. Oh, really? What does a dishonest man look like if you're honest? And then they said, we are of 12 sons and one of us is no more. What must Joseph have thought when he heard that? Because they were talking about him, one who is no more. Joseph's tightened vice of harsh treatment did work. You can see some of the results of it. As in verse 21 here, it, it, it really just amazes me. Because the minute these guys are thrown into jail and they're saying, well, what's this all about? Why is this happening? Immediately, what pops out? What what discussion do they have? Why, this is happening because of what we did to Joseph 20 years before. You see that big unresolved family problem has been right there like a huge cancerous mass that was never surgically removed from their family. And they say in verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother who we saw his, him in distress and he begged and we didn't listen. This is why this distress has come to us. They draw the, the lines of connecting the dots and say, this is all about Joseph. And Joseph heard what they were saying. It's a little unclear whether there was a, had to be a Hebrew interpreter literally between them. It seems that that's what verse 23 says. And yet Joseph, of course, had spoken Hebrew until he was 17, so he must have understood some of what they were saying. And it says, he turned aside and wept. These were his brothers. And he saw them still mourning what they had done to him. And was the test that he applied was beginning to work. You know, I came from a Sunday school where things were pretty rigorous. We had memory verses every week. Now, I suppose there was a home where children were and mom and dad went over the memory verse several times during the week, not my house. Saturday night, Saturday night, you polished your shoes for church, and you learned your memory verse. Mom drilled it. And there was one that I learned that I will never be able to forget. It's actually a rather obscure word that comes in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23. But it speaks a truth that is an abiding truth as we live our lives before God. Numbers thirty-two twenty-three says this, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Boy, when I learned that, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10, uh, that put the fear of God in me and, and made me go throughout my teen years, I think, when some people are doing a lot of things that were wild and reckless and You know, should you be doing that? Uh, Well, I can get away with it. Nobody will see. Oh, no. I remembered Numbers 32. Be sure of it. Your sin will find you out. And I know that held me back from some things. I didn't have a perfect youth, but it certainly made me think. God sees what I'm doing. And that's what's happening here. Oldest brother Reuben comes along as Mr. I told you so. Didn't I tell you we would face an accounting for our brother's blood? Uh Aha, you know, it was all your fault, not mine. It's not only Joseph who was applying pressure here. It was the methodology of the spirit of God to pursue these people and find them out in the midst of their sin. This situation made me think of Isaiah chapter one where the Lord Speaks through Isaiah, the prophet, 118. Come, the Lord says, let us reason together. Though your sins may be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. God is appealing. Come and throw yourself on my mercy so I don't have to tighten a vice of guilt upon you. I would rather forgive you and show you my grace. Well, I've seen plenty of people in our 21st century who've had the vice of Holy Spirit pressure tighten upon them due to the circumstances of unforgiven sin, of, of unconfessed problems. They know the problems are there. They're pretty close to the surface, but they've never dealt with it. They've never taken it before God. And thirdly today, I bring you to see the crucial verse 42, 28, because this is an important thing. As they were trying to add up in their minds, why is this happening? What is going on? I see here, thirdly, an awareness of God's providence is the first step in knowing his regenerating grace. For we read about how they left Egypt. One of them opened their sack and found his money bag, apparently the exact money he had brought to pay for the grain that he took away, in his sack. What is this? How could this be? He must have immediately looked over his shoulder to see if Pharaoh's chariots with the blue and red flashing lights were coming down the road to arrest these guys. My money's here. What kind of a mistake is this? Well, the important thing in verse 28 is, as it says, they turned trembling to one another. They said, what is this that God has done to us? There's been no previous indication anywhere in the entire narrative of Joseph that his 10 brothers ever acknowledged even the word God. Now they say, what is God doing to us? For the first time, they awaken to the fact that they have to deal with the Almighty, the ruler of the universe, the great God of providence. And we, in New Testament theological terms, what is happening in these men, regeneration or awakening, the first step in God's saving process. If you want to chart the work of salvation, you can study theology and and you'll have the steps spelled out, regeneration, justification, faith, adoption, sanctification, glorification. These are all the works that God does as he saves a soul. The first one is awakening, Regenerating from deadness so that someone is even aware that they have to do with God. Jesus told the parable, you remember, about the prodigal son in Luke 15. You remember that. The son ran away. He said, Dad, I want half the estate. It's going to come to me someday. I want it now. Always amazes me that he got it. But the father gave him half the estate. Off he went, wasted it all, threw it away, ended up feeding pigs desiring the food that the pigs had because he had none for himself. And in that parable, Luke 15, Jesus told this. He says, the son came to himself. Crucial words. The son's heart and soul were regenerated, awakened to the presence of God, and he decided to go to his father and throw himself on his father's mercy. Here is a fundamental Bible truth. God works behind the scenes of our life to awaken us, to regenerate us where we are dead, and to show us we are accountable to him and must come to him and throw ourselves on his mercy. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt like every flimsy prop that holds up your life is being pulled out from under you. Maybe you have. Maybe you're there right now. I don't know. But that's where these guys were They had been clever They had been able to pool their wisdom And resources before Figure out how to get out of a jam How to cover up with an agreed upon story It won't work now What is God Doing to us They're helpless Under the squeeze Of the grace of God At work convicting them And what happens to you when you're in that position? There's a verse in Hosea. The prophet Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 has this splendid statement from the Lord himself. He spoke through the prophet and said, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us in pieces. Imagine that somebody said, God has torn me in pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us that we might live in his presence. The God who has torn us will heal us. Martin Luther said that once that God has to be discovered to be your enemy before you can understand that he's your Savior. That's what these men were discovering. God was their enemy because of their unconfessed sin, their independence, their self-reliance that ignored God. But God used that godly fear. What is God doing here? To stir up the beginnings of their redemption. He says a broken and contrite heart he will never despise. And only when he has showed us that the cupboard that we think contains our own imagined goodness and righteousness is empty, can we turn to him, look to his mercy and say, God, I don't know what you're doing to me, but take me, save me, use me somehow. That's what we're going to see in these brothers. And it's a pathway by which we too can turn in our helplessness and our deadness to receive the mercy of God and the bread of life that he offers in Jesus Christ. Our Father, you were long ago working in these men before the name of Jesus was heard. The name was Joseph, but he's there as a model of your son. Thank you for him. Thank you that He didn't just rush in and hug his brothers and say all is forgiven. He was more interested in seeing you work things out in them. Father, maybe somebody here is in the midst of a time that's like a famine. It's unemployment, it's brokenness, it's a relationship gone bad, it's a marriage on the rocks. And they're saying, what is God doing to me? Would you bring that person to himself, to herself like the prodigal and receive them in arms of grace, the arms of Jesus wrapped around them. We ask for his sake. Amen.